I'm Gabby Lagurcio, your travel agent for tonight. It's my pleasure to take you to a place full of interesting conversation and untold stories. Our expected arrival time is 8.30, so fasten your seatbelts and please open your mind. Stay tuned for some music, culture, people, and places. Because right now, it's 8.30 somewhere. Powered by Base Base. Welcome to the first episode of 8.30 Somewhere. After releasing our pilot last week, we're dropping our first interview today. I'm so excited. You will hear funky and soulful music producer, multi-instrumentalist, and DJ, Ja Funk, speak about growing up in his hometown, where the music scene mostly focused on more poppy tunes, which is why he fled to the internet and later into other parts of the world where he found more like-minded people. I want you to imagine if he would have stayed he might not have become well-known for his soulful chords, grooving bass lines, and irresistible keyboard melodies, which all helped him sell close to one million samples through his popular sample pack series on Splice, as well as stream his music to millions. He might have become a pop star, though. Well, who knows? But what you might already know by now is that A30 Somewhere serves as an international stage for outstanding musicians of any genre from all around the world. During in-depth conversations with our host Ben Sharoni and our producer Max Gorin, our guests feed our audience's desire to explore the world through music. Our travel destination for today is Australia. Ja Funk shares his personal connections with his hometown of Perth, the capital and largest city of Western Australia. He grew up in a small suburb called Como, but had most of his musical highlights in the city centre. Ja Funk also gives us insights into the inspiration that he's gained through living in both England and Germany's capital. Before recording this interview, Ja Funk and Ben talked about COVID and the local situation in Berlin, and a few recent highlights of his past weeks. You know, just the usual chit-chat during a pandemic. <laughs> and now, please, let me take you to beautiful Perth, Australia. Yeah, so I um, I was actually born in a place called Hornsby, which is near Sydney in um, in New South Wales. Um, but we moved quite early to Perth because um, my dad was in the Navy. So he moved around quite a lot early on for his jobs. And um, yeah, we went to Perth very quickly and then to the UK for two years and then back to Perth again when I was about seven or eight years old. And then we spent, well, I spent the next... Um, sort of like 10, 15 years there. So I spent most of my life in Perth. So that's that's where I feel is my home, so to speak, still. Um, and yeah, yeah. so 6152 is uh, is a place called Como, which is in South Perth. And I, yeah, that, that was where my main uh, flat chair slash house thing was when I was growing up from about 18 through to 24. I think I lived most of my, my life there. Sorry, no, it would have been a little bit later. 20, <laughs> yeah, like 22, to, sorry, 21 to 24, I think, yeah, around that. I mean, researching about Como was kind of <laughs> ins insignificant, I'd say. Uh, <laughs> we, did, we, we couldn't find a lot of info about that, except yeah. for like super historical, um, like who the guy who founded it and stuff. Um, yeah. But maybe you could walk us through like how's Como like in comparison to Perth. So yeah, Perth, I guess um, 
you know, like Australia is such a huge country in, in just terms of the land size. Um, so everything's very spread out and it's not like unless you're in Sydney or Melbourne, um, you know, like the population's kind of spread out a little bit more over the over the city rather than concentrated in one spot, like, you know, what Berlin would be like or what London would be like. So Perth kind of like there is the city centre and there's, you know, the city centre is mostly shops and business, um, you know, like companies and this kind of stuff. They set up their offices there and there's clubs and stuff in the city as well. But people tend to live sort of outside of the very city centre in these um, these little suburbs, you know, that are like 10 or 15 minutes away from the city centre. Um, and Como was, yeah, Como is, I guess, a, quite a small area, like quiet area in South Perth. Um, there's not a whole lot that goes on there in terms of like music or art and culture and stuff. Um, it's mostly like residential. There's... Um, I live near a tennis club, which um, I was a tennis coach for, for most of my um, life, uh, my working life from about 16 through to 20, 28, I think I tennis coached. Um, but yeah, it's just small, like a small community. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it was a really nice chill place to live. Um, you know, I had my, my little studio set up in my bedroom and I made all my music in there. I had my friends who were all living kind of close by. And yeah, it was it was a nice chill area. And then you've got, uh, yeah, like the Perth City Centre, which, um, yeah, like I said, it's mostly business stuff. But then you do have um, Northbridge, which is the clubbing area um, where everyone will go like on Friday or Saturday night. And um, yeah, that's that's where more of the exciting stuff happens, I guess. Let me go like dial that back a bit. Was yeah. Como does Como reflect the type of music you grew up on? Um, the type of music that I don't know your parents listened to when you was younger. Um, I think the honest answer is not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I don't necessarily know if Como would even have a sound uh, in terms <laughs> of yeah, in terms of music. But like, I guess Perth. Maybe yeah, I could I could talk about more so the the kind of vibe of of Perth City as a whole. Like, um, you know, pop music is very popular in in Australia and in Perth in general. So like, um, you know, the main radio stations ninety six FM ninety two point nine Nova nine three seven. These are you know the most popular ones. So lots of people listen to that kind of music. Um, R and like R and B was also very huge, um, and it still is. Um, like. 90s and 2000s R&B, you know, like Nelly, uh, um, who else, you know, like Snoop Dogg, Drop It Like It's Hot, all this kind of vibe. Um, that's that's huge. And like that, that kind of reflects in the club scene there too. Like most of the nights in Perth would have been, um, you know, a mix of sort of pop music, pop dance music, like flow rider kind of stuff. And then you've got, yeah, they throw in the, the R&B um, kind of vibe as well and it's sort of that kind of mix and then also some classics like um, Horses, Daryl Braithwaite, I don't know, he's an Australian artist so may not have heard of him but yeah, there's these Australian classics that get thrown in too so yeah, it's kind. Of, that's the kind of um, music that's played out in Perth at clubs so I, I definitely felt kind of strange, you know, like with the music I liked, um, the more funky stuff and even dance and house music back then wasn't so big like when i was 
sort of around 2021. Um, so yeah, I definitely felt a little bit out of place there, but um, yeah, that that's kind of the vibe of Perth overall. And was there any specific track album that I don't know you came across and kind of made you want to create this funky music? Yeah. So yeah, when I my the first thing that I actually listened to, which I really was obsessed with, was like trance music and um, like electro house. That was kind of out at the time. Um, I think the first, yeah, the first thing that I kind of that got me into it would have been uh, Ministry of Sound. They had these compilations called The Annual. Um, and I just randomly one day, I must have been 16 or 17, just like saw, we had these CD shops as well in the shopping malls called Sanity. And, you know, I'd always just sort of pop in there and sort of browse around, you know, um, and then one day I just decided I was going to buy this album, Ministry of Sound, because the cover art looks cool. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what it was. I'd never even like listened to dance music before that. And then I just saw this album. And I was like, ah, oh, let's give this a go and see what happens. And so I bought that and that really changed everything in terms of the music that I liked. Um, you know, it was the first thing I actually listened to and I was like, wow, this is weird and like cool. What is this stuff? Um, so I started with that and then I eventually moved into like more trance music, I guess from, from listening to that album, I kind of realized the thing that I like is melody, like good melodies, good chords, but also with this like dance beat and this kind of groove. So I was obsessed with trance for a few years and then the guy, uh, like Eric Prids, do you know Eric Prids? No. Oh, okay. Uh, there's a, you know, call on me is a song. It's like, call on me, call on me. Da, da, da. You not heard that? I think I have. <laughs> okay. Maybe my singing doesn't quite do it justice, but um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so he is a like a really cool producer and he also has this alias called Prider, um, which is a bit deeper, a bit more underground. And I was that was the first thing I heard where I was like, okay, I want to start learning how to make this stuff because it seemed, it seemed so easy. Um, like the music that he made, you know, it was very simple. There wasn't a whole lot of what I will, what I thought at the time, complexity going on. Um, so I, th I just listened to it and I was like, yeah, I can make that. Surely that's easy. So I downloaded Ableton and some computer programs and um, started trying to copy that sound for a few years. And that's kind of how I cut my teeth in production is just trying to copy um, Prider. And then, yeah. Um, from there came along, I think the, the thing that sort of got me more down this funky direction was like, uh, first of all, Disclosure, when their first album and like, um, couple, first couple of EPs came out, like Offline Dexterity and these kind of things that was, that was really fresh. And I was like, okay, wow, this is really cool too. Um, and that sort of drove me into this area of like deep house and then house and funky house. And then, yeah, I guess it was like Funky House stuff, which really, yeah, I heard Funky House and, and Disclosure at the same time. And I was like, okay, I want to be a mash of these th two things together. Um, so, yeah, that's what kind of got me into the more funk and soulful sound. And you sort of started producing your own music, probably not releasing it yet. But like how this this process went, like did you let anyone listen to it? Did you... Um looked for any kind of feedback yeah i 
So when I like the first tracks I made, I I would just upload them to SoundCloud because I think at the time, like when I started making music, it would have been two thousand and like I want to say fourteen was the first time I touched uh like touched Ableton, um, and yeah, the thing to do then was just to upload it onto SoundCloud and then try to get people to repost it. And SoundCloud was really cool back then. Like it's kind of dead now, um, but. Back then, you, you know, you could get some big names reposting your stuff and that would change your career, you know, like you go from having 10 or 20 followers on there to having a couple of hundred with a, with a good repost. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of like, I'm actually kind of proud of myself because even the earliest tracks, like I listen back to them now, they're horrible, like <laughs> just terrible, terrible songs. Um, I would just post them on SoundCloud and then I'd share it on Facebook as well. I'd post it on my page and like, you know, everyone could see it who was my friend on Facebook. Um, and I'm surprised that they still were my friends after that too because <laughs> some of the songs were just trash. But um, yeah, I was, I was always quite open about sharing my music, I guess, um, with people and or just, just on the internet. I was a little bit maybe embarrassed to show it to my friends because – you know, they, they only really like pop music and, you know, the kind of stuff I was doing was so far away from, from what was considered the normal or, or the liked stuff. Um, but, yeah, I guess I, you know, from these albums like the Ministry of Sound one I was talking about earlier, I just, I don't know, I just somehow had this confidence to, to post it and, yeah, just to kind of see what happened. And in re regarding to, like, feedback, did you take any feedback or would you have any sort of threshold that you know like i don't know my friends are listening to the radio they love this poppy kind of music but it's not really what i want to do so i'm not sure if their feedback is useful for me i don't know like how how did you try to improve like who's who was i don't know if a yeah. mentor would be a right word but people that you looked up to and really looked for their feedbacks and criticism about your music yeah, I didn't really um, look for feedback from my like my closest friends at the time, but I I ended up making one friend uh, whose name's Sean Fletcher, who was probably the only other guy in Perth that I knew who was also into music in general and like particularly my style. So we developed this relationship where we would share music between each other just on um, like SoundCloud. We'd send each other tracks back and forth. And he was sort of the one guy who I bounced ideas off and I'd say, oh, you know, how do you think I can make this better? Um, and that was, that was really great to, you know, just to find one person who was on the same wavelength in terms of what music I liked. Definitely. Um, so he was the main dude, I'd say, who I shared my music with. But then um, I guess along came some people online, like uh, there were these guys, Golf Clap, Brian Jones and Hugh Cleal, who were... Uh, um, they don't actually work together anymore. They've gone their separate ways now, but they were the first ones to pick up my music and they're from Detroit in the US. Wow. Um, and that was, that was really the first thing I remember where I was like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe I'm onto something. I saw them actually post a video up on Instagram uh, playing a song at like just some party in Detroit and I was like, oh shit, like people actually, you know, listening to this stuff and playing this, it's, you know, it, it was crazy. So then I started sending him music and getting feedback from him. Um, yeah, and that's, that's kind of how it started because I just, I just kind of felt like most of my, my closest friends 
maybe they you know they just didn't they weren't into this type of music so they probably didn't understand what i was what i was trying to do and like i said the club culture in perth wasn't super you know funky house or even house in general there was there was only really one club that was playing that type of sound so yeah it was more online friends who i'd i'd show my music to and get feedback from i love it i love it i mean the way the internet sort of you find your community and feedback through it even though yeah you're in Perth, some guy in Detroit just happens to hear about that. You post stuff on SoundCloud and things just happen. I mean, it, it is, it's beautiful. Um, Crazy, yeah. And I mean, in Perth, did you get a chance to perform, um, showcase your music? How, I don't know, welcoming <laughs> was the <laughs> music community in Perth to different genres? Yeah, sure. So I finally... I guess the first the first time I got the chance to play my music out was at a club called Geisha Bar, who um, are a really cool club. They're playing uh, like house music, like kind of more deeper stuff. Um, you know, they have like minimal house, tech house. Um, you know, real real kind of underground vibe. Not um, not so much like the commercial house that was around at the time, and like you know, big EDM kind of stuff that was more for the festivals, but. These, yeah, habit. They run this event called Habitat, and they they were the first people I was like, okay, they're actually doing really cool stuff. Um, I like you know the music they're playing at the club, so I went and tried out for a DJ competition there. Um, that they run. Yeah, yeah, they run it at the club. It's basically an event where they, um, you know, anyone can sign up, and they have these various heats. Um, over the course of, you know, a couple of months or whatever. And then they have like a, a final and then the winner gets um, like a regular slot on one of their club nights. And and that's how I started. So do you basically just um, just walk us through the like how one hit would probably work? No, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's at night. So the, I think they usually go from about 11 p.m. to I want to say, you know, this is quite a while ago, so I want to say 11 p.m. <laughs> till like 2 a.m. It went for about three, two or three hours, if I can recall correctly. And you'd have a 20-minute slot, so you'd have 20 minutes to kind of do your thing and play some tunes. Um, and then there'd be judges who are like the club owners and the event runners. They'd be the judges, and they're sort of just sitting in the back of the club, kind of like listening to how you play. And then there's you know just a the general audience who who normally come there they you know they're on the dance floor so they're listening as well so you're actually playing to a crowd so it's like a it's a pretty cool thing you know you're, you're getting the proper club experience um and then you obviously bring all your friends in and that's i guess that's probably half of why they run the event too so they can get everyone's friends in and make some money on ticket <laughs> sales but um yeah so that was the first time i i really played my the music that i actually liked in a club because i was also doing you know parties and um and i was a wedding dj for quite a while too so i'd play all the commercial stuff there which you know some of it i still liked i'm not gonna lie um but you know the more underground stuff i never had the chance to play properly to a, a receptive audience so yeah i ended up coming i think in that competition i came like third or something um, and then they, you know, the club came to me and was like, yeah, you know, we, we liked how you played. We'd like to get you on every now and then for, you know, for some, some events. So that's, yeah, that's, that was a big influence too. Cause then my music, I wanted to make this more housey kind of underground stuff so I could play it out at the club. 
Um, and then, yeah, like I, I would usually play like the opening set or sometimes the closing set. I was never given the peak slot. So I would always play my music to, you know, like a couple of people kicking around in the club. But uh, yeah, rarely to uh, like a packed dance floor or something like that. What was being a wedding DJ like? Was it frustrating <laughs> not to be able to like do the stuff that you wanted to do? Or you said you enjoyed some of the music, so. Yeah, no, it definitely, um, it had both sides to it. Like it was fun and there was some good money in it. So it was, you know, the first, I guess the first realization like, okay, maybe I can make a career out of this kind of, like, of just DJing in general and you know, I can make some money from this. But then it was also quite soul crushing in the sense that you can't really ever play the music that you really want to play. So it was always I'm a sure short Sure, it feels term. Like, like selling out. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly that. Exactly that. So I was, um, I did it for like two years, I think. And yeah, like some, some nights are quite fun. You can, like the R&B stuff I still really like because it's quite soulful and you know, it's in the kind of world um, like of my music now too. So it was fun to play that kind of stuff. But then there's other nights where you have to, you know, like play more rock kind of stuff and you're not really even DJing. You sort of just, you know, play and pause and switching between the tracks that way. So, uh, yeah, it was, it got old quite quickly, I will say. I was like, yeah, there's no way I can do this forever. I need to find something else. So that's why I took up production. <laughs> but in general, I think that this experience is, I mean, I wouldn't say necessary, but probably important. I mean, yeah. you're not only paying your bills, but at the end of the day, you sort of know what you don't want and having this opportunity exactly. to. Yeah, like, you have to start somewhere. <laughs> like, and like, I mean, that's good because, you know, like I don't want to be a wedding DJ. Uh, I'm not sure that like rock music talks to me the way yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so you really have this opportunity to sharpen your personality character as a musician and as a person i mean it's yeah. definitely a, an important milestone um absolutely there's there's talk of like you know to you know really be successful and to go somewhere you need to find something you want to run towards and then you also need to find something you want to run away from <laughs> so that's definitely what like wedding djing and um like you know commercial djing did for me i was i kind of looked at that and i was like I, you know, it's just like you said, it's, I felt like I was selling out and I, I wasn't my true self, you know, my, my thing in life, I guess in general has always been, I only want to really do something that I'm super passionate about um, or, you know, something that just means something to me, something that's important to me. Um, obviously the passion kind of like goes up and down, but I always just wanted to stick at something which was important to me. So um, yeah, that, that was, like you said, it was great to have something to run away from because I actually kind of turned away from DJing um, after, yeah, after being in Perth for a couple of years. I was like, ah, oh, you know, there's no real opportunities to play the music that I like. You know, I'm going to go down this production route because when I'm producing music, that's a place where I can, you know, truly be myself and to, you know, to do my thing. So, Yeah. It was great to do that. But then it kind of changed when I went to London and found out about the electronic music scene there, kind of reignited my flame for DJing. Um, I'm not sure, but and uh, where where was your first EP released? Was it in London or back in Perth? Um, my first EP, I never really did EPs. I, I usually did singles. 
I just chuck single tracks out there up on SoundCloud. Um, but I, I did have an EP eventually with um, with the Detroit guys, Golf Clap. Um, it, it was kind of a, I think it was two or three singles which I'd already released just up on SoundCloud for free download. They reached out and said, hey, you know, we'd, we'd like to release these in a, in a bundle. You up for it? And I was like, yep. Cool. Was so that I think, elevator music, or is that something? Uh, else? no, it was a, it was another one called. It was actually called the Passion EP on a label called Country Club Disco. Um, so that yeah, that was that was probably the first EP I ever did. I think that was in two thousand and must have been like sixteen or seventeen. And working on it was it in any way different than working on early music, like knowing that. It would all come out together in a one bundle. Um, not well, not really, because I'd actually already released the songs. So you know, the three songs that ended up on the EP were already out, and they just said, "Hey, we'd like to put these together and and release it that way." So yeah, I've yeah, the, it was different though. Like um, you did mention Elevator Music, which was an EP I did with a, a really cool singer here, Aaron Pfeiffer, who's now in Miami. Um, But that was really cool because that was the first time, you know, we said before writing this, we, we'd written one song and then we said, okay, you know, this is a really cool vibe. Let's do two more of these and make an EP. So that was, yeah, it was very interesting to, um, you know, to have that one song that was really vibey and then really get into it and say, okay, you know, we're going to keep the same sort of sounds going through to keep the consistency of it. Um, and we really dug in in terms of the artwork and... The look. Yeah, I was going to say, I actually recognize the artwork. It's by an artist, uh, Hiroshi Nagai, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you like Japanese art? Uh, is that something that you chose? Like, how did that come to be? Yeah, it's, I like, I spent a couple of days um, while we we're writing the EP, like really going into Instagram and like Pinterest and stuff. I kind of drove myself crazy to find this this artwork, you know, like, just into the, you know, the related images of the related images, blah, 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 down this deep rabbit hole. And yeah, I guess um, like Japanese art, I, I kind of was exposed to it the first time through Future Funk, um, like sampled kind of disco stuff with a house beat. They, um, as kind of like a crossover of the anime world and, and this type of sound. So that was probably the first time I was exposed to it. Um, And yeah, I don't know. I I just kind of saw it and thought, yes, this you know this really represents just the the sound of the music. You know, like it's it's painted in such an old school kind of seventies way, but it also has this futuristic element to it, and that's kind of exactly what we wanted with the music. We um we dubbed the genre of it like future retro, so it yeah it just really fit perfectly. Definitely, yeah. Actually, his artwork is used on a lot of like. Uh future funk vaporwave type compilation yeah uh, stuff yeah so it's pretty cool yeah And exactly we did find out that there's a reddit user called jafunk who posted in a lot of uh japanese pop communities um oh really <laughs> so it's not you <laughs> no it's not me i have no idea you have to send me the link to that yeah, <laughs> yeah. sure that's crazy <laughs> If we're already on this uh, on this uh, topic, there's <laughs> in our research we found so we found that one user on Reddit who posts a lot of Japanese <laughs> funk and pop, uh, and we found a website that's called 
jafunkfuneralhome.com. I saw that as well, actually, yeah. When I, uh, when I was coming up with my name, I saw that. It was, it's like j.a.funkfuneralhomes, right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was the only thing that, yeah, I guess came up with the Jafunk search <laughs> as well. So, that's funny. But no, I haven't seen that, re- that Reddit user. I'm, you have to send me that. Well, well. That's insane. I mean, you're doing good with SEOs because the uh, funeral house is pushed to like page four or something. Yeah, Google, we had so. to dig really deep <laughs> to find that. Uh, that's good. I'm, I hope I haven't put them out of too much business though. <laughs> I mean, a global pandemic might help that. Yeah. Anyway. Um, that's a dark, getting dark a bit joke, morbid there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if we're going to, like, to this dark kind of uh, vibe. <laughs> Regarding your name, anything specific? Like what made you pick Jafunk? Um, so it's, there's no real thought behind it. It was, it was more so when I was coming up with it, I just had, I just wrote down on a bit of paper, a bunch of stuff like that I wanted my music to sound like. And I was obviously writing like, you know, funk, funky, soulful, this kind of thing. Um, and I also on the same paper just wrote some random letters and sounds I like, and J was a letter that I just like the shape of visually. Um, and then my mate, uh, my best friend, Josh, Winterton, he was kind of just kicking around with me at the time, and he he actually suggested he's like, oh, why don't you, why don't you just do Jar Funk? And at first I was like, ah, yeah, I don't really like it. It's kind of I don't know, just kind of lame. And then <laughs> after a few days, I didn't really have anything better, and the name kind of grew on me as well. So I was like, okay, we'll go with this, and it yeah, it's just stuck since then. You moved to London because Perth wasn't enough. Um, the music scene wasn't offering enough opportunities for you. Did you have anything like on your plate before going, or was it just like I'm going for it and let's see how things are going? Yeah, it was definitely more on that side of things. Like I, I had the only thing I really had before going there was one sketchy tennis coaching job offer, which I wasn't even sure if I was going to be able to get. But I just. You know, I just wanted to get there and be in the place and then I kind of just had this faith that something would happen and I'd be okay. Um, so I, I, I kind of just went there with the idea in mind that I wanted to get amongst dance music culture and, you know, all the things that I'd heard and seen online about London and just, you know, videos from clubs there, you know, like I knew, um, you know, there's huge clubs like Fabric, uh, Ministry of Sound, uh, XOYO, I'd heard about all these clubs. And a lot of the, you know, the house music that I was listening to came from the UK. Um, so I knew there was this world there of dance music and I kind of just got the sense that it was more accepted in, in London particularly and in the UK, like it was more a part of their culture than, than dance music was in Australia. So... Yeah, I just wanted to go there and see if I could make something happen with with both DJing and and with my music. And it turned out to be like more than I ever expected and and probably two two of the best years of my life living there from 2016 to 18. So to paint kind of paint the picture like in Australia all like the big room kind of Martin Garrix this type of EDM house that was the you know, the popular thing at festivals. So that was the only real dance music that was being accepted in Australia. And then the first festival that I went to in the UK, I walked into the main room tent and there was like a a soulful house tune from Defector Records. It's called Finally by Kings of Tomorrow, which is like one of my favorite songs ever. 
And I walked into that room and there's like 10,000 people in this tent, like singing all the words to this song. And at that moment, I was like, oh my God, I am in the right place. <laughs> all of a sudden feeling at home when yeah. you just got there, I guess. Exactly. And from, yeah, from that moment, I really did feel like I was a part of something at that point, you know, like I'd always felt in Perth, like I was this weird outsider who was, you know, the only guy into this type of music. And then going, yeah, just walking into that environment. And, you know, there was another place called um, the South London Soul Train. And it was this big uh, place in Peckham called Bussy Building. And, you know, it, it was like four levels or something. And all the levels are full of young people dancing to disco music, like 70s and 80s disco music. And it was just crazy to to finally go, okay, I'm not just some strange dude making and listening to this music in his bedroom <laughs> and was it a way for you to just connect with other people i mean professionals as well not only future audience or yeah. prospective audience yeah absolutely like i met a good friend of mine uh fabish there who i've made music with um like i'd, I'd also knew about his music before going over to the uk but i was at a chance meeting at a party we we got in touch and started doing some studio sessions together and he really opened up so much for me in terms of um, like I never done a session with a vocalist before that, and so then coming in with him, we every session we'd do, we'd be working with the vocalist. So he really showed me how it sort of goes in these sessions, and um, he's a really good he's a really good director of the room. He can, um, you know, keep things on the right track, keep things moving in terms of the session. So it was great to see how he works. And I also just met so many other people through him, other producers, singers, and artists. So yeah, it was it was a game changer in every sense moving there. You performed in, in Coco's, right? Um, before yeah. the big fire broke out in 2020. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think they were they were in need of renovations anyway, but that fire certainly kickstarted those. Coco is a big like concert venue club in London, uh, in Camden. And, it, you know, it's an iconic venue. Like there's, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, like, you know, David Bowie's performed there, you know, like so many big names. I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, I was very, very lucky. There was the promoter of this event called Burst there. Um, you know, the club, I think the club holds something like 5,000 people or something. Uh, and... The, the promoter of this event just reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we've got this event. Do you want to come along and play? And I'm like, uh, okay, is this like a joke? <laughs> um, and yeah, like it was insane. Like you're up on this, you have this stage. Like it was a huge stage. They put you up there and they have like the covers in front of the stage all the way down. And then, you know, your set starts and they lift it up and there's all these crazy lights and stuff. Um, and yeah, it was a theater. Yeah, right like, exactly. Uh, the beginning of twentieth century. So, I mean, it kind of keeping the essence of the place. I would say. I mean, I haven't had a chance. I lived in London uh, last year as well, yeah. but I haven't had a chance to be there because of the fire and, of course, COVID. But yeah, London is full of those places yeah. where all the magic happens. At, yeah. Um, which I, I, I definitely could see why. You were so like amazed by it as well. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was definitely the biggest place I'd ever played at because before, I, you know, I played in smaller clubs and stuff in Perth and a couple in London when I moved there. 
Um, but that was that was a whole new thing. And you know, they 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 treated you so well there as a DJ. You got like thirty people on the guest list. Um, they gave you a green room out the back of the club, so you could you know take all your friends there. They give you free drinks and stuff. So it was it was just awesome, really. Um, but yeah, like you said, there are all these places. There's another place called Troxy. I don't know if you ever went there. I saw a Catronada there for the first time, and it's it's a similar sort of thing. Like it must have been an old theater or something originally converted into a club. But yeah, that's kind of the London vibe. I think is like these, like you said, they're they're these small places, but well, you know, they they used to be something else. It was a theater, but then they turn it into a club, and yeah, the magic happens in these weird kind of like it's not really a club but it is a club these type of places did you play in other places in the uk or as well or did you stay mostly in london um focused on london um i played once in sheffield um we had a little group called uh the boys next door um which was me chris fabish um pastel um Siente, just kidding guys were also a part of that and uh we had a, a little tour up to sheffield once at this like it was like a student event at this club um i can't remember exactly what the name of it was um but yeah it was it was this small club uh these guys just chucked it was it was actually like more of a bar but they then just chucked these huge speakers in there and kind of turned it into a club um, and that was awesome to play in Sheffield too. We just played like house and disco for the whole night and yeah, it was sick. And sounds like you got a lot of more inspiration than you'd have if you'd say in Perth, um, London just became this, I mean, it is a huge metropolitan uh, international city with a lot of internationals in it as well. Yeah. So just being like inspired by all those people around you sounds fascinating, especially for a guy who just was craving it in yeah. some sort of sense back in uh, back in Australia. Exactly, exactly that. Like, it, yeah, it inspired me and it also just gave me the belief that doing dance music and being a producer or a DJ was an actual, you know, possibility for a career and, to, you know, to do this for a living. Because I met, you know, I met producers who were, um, you know, doing it full time and I sort of found out and asked them how they made it work and, uh yeah it was it really gave me the belief to keep going and and to pursue it up until now um london sounds like this fabulous place. yeah um a lot of inspiration a lot of people um a lot of opportunities as well like a lot of clubs um why what, what was behind the move to berlin um the moves to berlin came about mainly because my visa ran out in the uk and i couldn't uh i wasn't able to extend it um so yeah it Actually, the plan was, so after London, I did my two and a half years there and I went back to Australia and I was, I was planning on living in Sydney from there on in, but I kind of got back there and, you know, I kind of just felt all the same things again that kind of made me move away from there in the first place, um, which, you know, Australia is still an amazing place. Like there's great music stuff coming out of there now like a good friend of mine young franco is really killing it cosmos midnight these guys there's some really cool music coming out of there but i don't know i just felt more connected to europe in um just in a musical sense i guess so i yeah i was in canberra which is near to sydney seeing my family at the end of 2000 and must have been 19 um sorry no end of 2018 and then i was like i went to sydney for a little bit to try living there i was like mm, nah 
So <laughs> I think a week later, I'd started looking into visas and I had a couple of friends, Aaron Pfeiffer and Cedric Perry, who um, we'd done a song with them called Back to Life. And so I'd met them in London and they were the only guys I really knew here. But, you know, I just wanted to get back to Europe and Germany had a pretty easy visa to get. So I was like, yep, let's, let's give this a go. I mean, I'm just thinking about it in relation to like your experience in Perth. Um, Berlin is a more of a hip-hop kind of techno yeah. place. I mean, the first things that comes to my mind with Berlin is probably the Belgain. Yeah, um, of course. And the techno scene. Um, how do you find yourself in it like nowadays? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Because, uh, yeah, like you said, techno and like, you know, German hip-hop and probably hip-hop, like US hip-hop and stuff are the, the biggest genres here. So, again, I'm kind of in this place. It's a little bit strange. You know, I don't necessarily fit with with disco and house, but I think there are these little pockets here where, you know, even in Bergheim, for example, a Panorama Bar, I went to Panorama once. It was the only time they've ever let me in. I've tried three times, but I only got in once. Um, and I only got into Panorama, so I still haven't been to Bergheim. But, um, yeah, like, you know, at Panorama, um, I forget the name of the DJ who was playing there, but it was like a, a legend, uh, like Chicago house guy. And he was playing on vinyl. You know, we were there till about nine in the morning. And I think, uh, you know, when the sun was coming up, he was playing uh, like old disco records. And, you know, that's that's just a vibe. And, you know, so people do like disco and house here as well. But the thing I really like about Berlin is it's such a free city in terms of, you can express yourself however you want. You can be however you want to be here and no one really bats an eye, you know, like you can walk down the street in a, you know, a, maybe a fluorescent green fur coat and people will just go, oh, I guess he knows something that I don't. You know, they're not going to look at you and go, oh, what a weird, you know, what a weird guy. So I feel, yeah, it's it's been so good moving here just to kind of, in, a t in terms of self-discovery, to really have the freedom to, you know, to be who I want to be as a, as a human and, and just find out, yeah, like where, where exactly do I fit into this world? Yeah, Berlin is super liberal. I guess that I was just thinking about the fact that like your opportunities or seeing yourself within the city, producing music in this city, it's less, I don't know, open to your kind of music style, like musical style than London or... Yeah. Yeah, I guess, um, yeah, maybe London still is a better fit in terms of like dance, music and disco are maybe more popular there. Um, but I certainly still feel like people like that and they like the soulful stuff. And, um, you know, there is this little scene here in Berlin of like jazz, alternative, maybe alternative R&B, you could call it that, and dance music crossover. There is this little pocket here. Um, so it's nice to be a part of that, but um, yeah, I think London's definitely, I still feel more at home there, I guess, musically. But the other thing that's really cool about Berlin is there's so many artists and singers and musicians and everything here. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a great place to be as a producer because you can, you know, like I can make a lot of songs here because there's so many people to work with and um yeah so I, I still feel great here in berlin too actually interesting i mean uh the fact that you 
talk about cooperations and talking to other people, um, creating music with other musicians or just having artists around for inspiration. I mean, it really kind of makes me think about sampling in that sense, um, you know, just using someone else's loops or bits and pieces to create your own music. Mm-hmm. And I want like, to hear your take about sampling in general, I think. Um, like, how do you create new stuff of old or known pieces of music yeah so yeah i like sampling is such an important part of music in the last 20 years you know from like i guess hip-hop was maybe the first genre to do it like when they started sampling the disco records and then you know daft punk did it like it was more of a dance music thing to do as well um it's always been a part of music and i think yeah like music it's so hard to say that, you know, anything, any type of music ever is, you know, completely original and not influenced by anything else. Like to me, all music's like all artists have been inspired by by someone or something and then they've taken that and it's, you know, their music is just an evolution of, of their inspirations, I guess. That's kind of how I see it. Um, so, yeah, it's such an integral part of music and for me, like I... Like my thing has always been that I wanted to be unique and I wanted to stand out. So like when I'm sampling, I'm I'm trying to look for stuff that, you know, that nobody else has and that's completely, you know, maybe, you know, it's maybe in areas that not many other people are looking. Like right now my thing is I don't really sample whole disco tracks, but I'll, I found this website where you can find the drum stems for... Um, for like all the 70s and 80s disco. So I've been using like 70s and 80s drums in the tracks mixed with electronic stuff, um, like the newer electronic stuff now. Um, so yeah. Is it a real struggle just to find this, I don't know, track or sound that nobody has used before? Yeah, like especially nowadays, um, you know, everything's been done. So like so much stuff has been done. <laughs> it's very hard to find something completely unique. But um yeah, in terms of finding, yeah, finding samples that no one else has used, it's yeah, it requires a little bit of digging, I think. But there's still stuff out there. It, it, it's probably been used before, but maybe it hasn't been used in you know this particular way that I'm doing it. So um, yeah, you just got to look, just got to dig. Yeah, really reminds me of references in books, and you know, like having those ideas that influenced you you give them some sort of a place in your own creation but then have to find your own unique voice in it you're like that's the way your creativity shows out yeah um just putting it all together exactly do you have a do you have a sample that you would say is like the sample that got away like you really wanted to use it but you couldn't figure out how to make it fit the song that you were trying to use there was there was this one, actually, there was this one, I remember I, I went through a phase of, like, I really wanted to find a cool disco sample and use it in a song, just like kind of a future funk type of vibe. And I found this one YouTube channel, um, it's like old school Gianni, with, and it's all this old 70s funk kind of stuff, like rare, rare stuff as well. Um. And it's got about a thousand videos on the channel. And I think I went through every single video just to find like that sample. And I eventually found one that I really liked. I like chopped it up in this weird way too. So it was almost completely unrecognizable. But I just could not 
make it work in a song. And so I was like, ah, all that work. Didn't even get anything out of it. So, yeah, I can't remember what that sample was now. I have to go back and find it. But, um, yeah, I wish that had happened. We have to incorporate it into the episode, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Would have, it would have been such a good story, you know, like, yeah, I spent days yeah. digging through this channel and I eventually found the one. But, yeah, no luck, unfortunately. unfortunately. Thanks, Ja Funk, Ben, and Max for this wonderful conversation. This episode of 830 Somewhere was brought to you by Basebase, your favorite international platform for music-related content. As an independent media production, we would highly appreciate all kinds of support. Also, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming service. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any thoughts on Jaw Funk, Perth, or this episode in general, we would love to read them in the comments section of our social media posts and even stories. I would like to end this episode by shouting out everybody that was involved in this particular episode of 830 Somewhere. Hosting by Ben Sharoni, Max Gorin, and myself, Gabby Lagursio. Editorial work by Ben Sharoni and Yosha David. Recording and post-production by Max Gorin. Direction and executive production by Yosha David. Coordination by David Geronoste. Music and sound effects by Hackmack and Max Gorin. I'm Gabby Lagursio, your travel agent. Until the next ride, somewhere at 8.30.